Chapter One of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter One. The Pacific Coast in 1845. Speeches of Senator Benton and Report of Captain Fremont. My Father and His Family. Interest Awakened in the New Territory. Formation of the First Immigrant Party from Illinois to California. Preparations for the Journey. The Start. On the Outskirts of Civilization. Prior to the year 1845, that great domain lying west of the Rocky Mountains and extending to the Pacific Ocean was practically unknown. About that time, however, the spirit of inquiry was awakening. The powerful voice of Senator Thomas H. Benton was heard, both in public address and in the halls of Congress, calling attention to Oregon and California. Captain John C. Fremont's famous topographical report and maps had been accepted by Congress and 10,000 copies ordered to be printed and distributed to the people throughout the United States. The commercial world was not slow to appreciate the value of those distant and hitherto unfrequented harbors. Tales of the equable climate and the marvelous fertility of the soil spread rapidly, and it followed that before the close of 1845, Pioneers on the western frontier of our ever-expanding republic were preparing to open a wagon route to the Pacific coast. After careful investigation and consideration, my father, George Donner, and his elder brother, Jacob, decided to join the westward migration, selecting California as their destination. My mother was in accord with my father's wishes and helped him to carry out his plan. At this time he was sixty-two years of age, large, fine-looking, and in perfect health. He was of German parentage, born of revolutionary stock just after the close of the war. The spirit of adventure, with which he was strongly imbued, had led him in his youth from North Carolina, his native state, to the land of Daniel Boone, thence to Indiana, to Illinois, to Texas, and ultimately back to Illinois while still in manhood's prime. By reason of his geniality and integrity, he was widely known as Uncle George in Sangamon County, Illinois, where he had broken the virgin soil two and a half miles from Springfield, when that place was a small village. There he built a home, acquired wealth, and took an active part in the development of the country round about. Twice had he been married, and twice bereft by death when he met my mother, Tamson Eustace Dozier, then a widow, whom he married May 24, 1839. She was a native of Newburyport, Massachusetts. She was cultured and had been a successful teacher and writer. Their home became the local literary center after she was installed as its mistress. My father had two sons and eight daughters when she became his wife but their immediate family circle consisted only of his aged parents, and Elitha and Leanna, 
young daughters of his second marriage, until July 8, 1840, when blue-eyed Francis Eustace was born to them. On the 4th of December, 1841, brown-eyed Georgia Ann was added to the number, and on the 8th of March, 1843, I came into this world. I grew to be a healthy, self-reliant child, a staff to my sister Georgia, who, on account of a painful accident and long illness during her first year, did not learn to walk steadily until after I was strong enough to help her to rise and lead her to a sand-pile near the orchard where we played away the bright days of two uneventful years. With the approaching winter of 1845, popular interest in the great territory to the west of us spread to our community. Maps and reports were eagerly studied. The few old letters which had been received from traders and trappers along the Pacific coast were brought forth for general perusal. The course of the reading society which met weekly at our home was changed in order that my mother might read to those assembled in the publications which had kindled in my father and uncle the desire to migrate to the land so alluringly described. Prominent among these works were Travels Among the Rocky Mountains, Through Oregon and California, by Lansford W. Hastings, and also the topographical report, with maps attached, by Captain Fremont, which has already been mentioned. The Springfield Journal, published by Mr. Allen Francis, appeared with glowing editorials strongly advocating emigration to the Pacific Coast, and its columns contained notices of companies forming in southern and southwestern states, each striving to be ready to join the great overland caravan, scheduled to leave Independence, Missouri, for Oregon, early in May 1846. Mr. James F. Reed, a well-known resident of Springfield, was among those who urged the formation of a company to go directly from Sangamon County to California. Intense interest was manifested, and had it not been for the widespread financial depression of that year, a large number would have gone from that vicinity. The great cost of equipment, however, kept back many who desired to make the long journey. As it was, James F. Reed, his wife and four children, and Mrs. Keyes, the mother of Mrs. Reed, Jacob Donner, his wife, and seven children, and George Donner, his wife, and five children, also their teamsters and camp assistants, thirty-two persons all told, constituted the first immigrant party from Illinois to California. The plan was to join the Oregon caravan at Independence, Missouri, continue with it to Fort Hall, and thence follow Fremont's route to the Bay of San Francisco. The preparations made for the journey by my parents were practical. Strong, commodious, immigrant wagons were constructed especially for the purpose. The oxen to draw them were hardy, well-trained, and rapid walkers. Three extra yoke were provided for emergencies. Cows were selected to furnish milk on the way. A few young beef cattle, five saddle horses, and a good watchdog completed the list of livestock. After carefully calculating the requisite amount of provisions, father stored in his wagons a quantity that was deemed more than sufficient to last until we should reach California. Seed and seed implements for use on the prospective farms in the new country also constituted an important part of our outfit. Nor was that all. There were bolts of cheap cotton prints, red and yellow flannels, 
bright-bordered handkerchiefs, glass beads, necklaces, chains, brass finger-rings, earrings, pocket-looking-glasses, and diverse other knick-knacks dear to the hearts of aborigines. These were intended for distribution as peace-offerings among the Indians. Lastly, there were rich stores of laces, muslins, silks, satins, velvets, and the like, cherished fabrics, destined to be used in exchange for Mexican land-grants in that far land to which we were bound. My mother was energetic in all these preparations, but her special province was to make, and otherwise get in readiness, a bountiful supply of clothing. She also superintended the purchase of materials for women's handiwork, apparatus for preserving botanical specimens, watercolors and oil paints, books and school supplies, these latter being selected for use in the young lady's seminary, which she hoped to establish in California. A liberal sum of money for meeting incidental expenses and replenishing supplies on the journey, if need be, was stored in the compartments of two wide buckskin girdles to be worn in concealment about the person. An additional sum of $10,000 cash was stitched between the folds of a quilt for safe transportation. This was a large amount for those days, and few knew that my parents were carrying it with them. I gained my information concerning it in later years from Mr. Francis, to whom they showed it. To each of his grown children, my father deeded a fair share of his landed estate, reserving 110 acres near the homestead for us, five younger children, who in course of time might choose to return to our native state. As time went on, our preparations were frequently interrupted by social obligations, farewell visits, dinners, and other merry-makings with friends and kindred far and near. Thursday, April 15, 1846, was the day fixed for our departure, and the members of our household were at work before the rosy dawn. We children were dressed early in our new Lindsay traveling suits, and as the final packing progressed, we often peeped out of the window at the three big white covered wagons that stood in our yard. In the first were stored the merchandise and articles not to be handled until they should reach their destination. In the second, provisions, clothing, camp tools, and other necessaries of camp life. The third was our family home on wheels, with feed boxes attached to the back of the wagon bed for Fanny and Margaret, the favorite saddle horses, which were to be kept ever close at hand for emergencies. Early in the day, the first two wagons started, each drawn by three yoke of powerful oxen, whose great moist eyes looked as though they too had parting tears to shed. The loose cattle quickly followed, but it was well on toward noon before the family wagon was ready. Then came a pause, fraught with anguish, to the dear ones gathered about the homestead to say farewell. Each tried to be courageous, but not one was so brave as father when he bade good-bye to his friends, to his children, and to his children's children. I sat beside my mother with my hand clasped in hers as we slowly moved away from that quaint old house on its grassy knoll, from the orchard, the cornland, and the meadow. As we passed through the last pair of bars, her clasp tightened, and I, glancing up, saw tears in her eyes and sorrow in her face. I was grieved at her pain, and in sympathy I nestled closer to her side and sat so quiet that I soon fell asleep. When I awoke, the sun still shone, 
but we had encamped for the night on the ground where the State House of Illinois now stands. Mr. Reed and family, and my uncle Jacob and family, with their traveling equipments and cattle, were already settled there. Under father's direction, our own encampment was soon accomplished. By nightfall, the duties of the day were ended, and the members of our party gathered around one fire to spend a social hour. Presently, the clatter of galloping horses was heard, and shortly thereafter, eight horsemen alighted, and with merry greetings joined our circle. They were part of the reading society, and had come to hold its last reunion beside our first campfire. Mr. Francis was among them, and took an inventory of the company's outfit for the benefit of the readers of the Springfield Journal. They piled more wood on the blazing fire, making it a beacon light to those who were watching from afar. They sang songs, told tales, and for the time being drove homesickness from our hearts. Then they rode away in the moonlight, and our past was a sweet memory, our future a beautiful dream. William Donner, my half-brother, came to camp early next morning to help us get the cattle started and to accompany us as far as the outskirts of civilization. We reached Independence, Missouri on the 11th of May, with our wagons and cattle in prime condition, and our people in the best of spirits. Our party encamped near that bustling frontier town, and were soon a part of the busy crowds, making ready for the great prairie on the morrow. Teams thronged the highways, troops of men, women, and children hurried nervously about, seeking information and replenishing supplies. Jobbers on the street were crying their wares, anxious to sell anything or everything required, from a shoestring to a complete outfit for a four-month's journey across the plains. Beads of sweat clung to the merchants' faces as they rushed to and fro, filling orders. Brawny blacksmiths with breasts bared and sleeves rolled high hammered and twisted red-hot metal into the divers' forms necessary to repair yokes and wagons. Good fellowship prevailed as strangers met, each anxious to learn something of those who might, by chance, become his neighbors in line. Among the pleasant acquaintances made that day was Mr. J. Q. Thornton, a young attorney from Quincy, Illinois, who, with his invalid wife, was emigrating to Oregon. He informed us that himself and wife and Governor Boggs and family of Missouri were hourly expecting Alfonso Boone, grandson of Daniel Boone, and that as soon as Boone and his family should arrive from Kentucky, they would all hasten on to join Colonel Russell's California company, which was already on the way, but had promised to await them somewhere on the Kansas River. It was then believed that at least 7,000 immigrant wagons would go west through Independence that season. Obviously, the journey should be made while pasturage and water continued plentiful along the route. Our little party at once determined to overtake Colonel Russell and apply for admission to his train, and for that purpose we resumed travel early on the morning of May 12th. As we drove up Main Street, delayed immigrants waved us a light-hearted goodbye and as we approached the building of the American Track Society, its agent came to our wagons and put into the hand of each child a New Testament and gave to each adult a Bible and also tracts to distribute among the heathen in the benighted land to which we were going. Near the outskirts of town we parted from William Donner, took a last look at Independence, turned our backs to the morning sun, and became pioneers indeed to the far west.
End of chapter 1. Recording by Alana Jordan.